Little Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reproductive Left. My name is Aspen, I use they, them pronouns, and I'm here to kick off our summer season with a bit of a legislative debrief. This isn't just any debrief though, this is an interview with my coworker and former Reproductive Left host, Abby. Abby, thank you for joining me today. Hi Aspen, thank you for having me. I am so excited to uh, have you here. Uh, So with talking about this uh, legislative debrief, a little bit of important context, the main legislative session is not over. Uh, We're debriefing pieces of legislation that we've given testimony on for Mabel's this session and other important context is that we are recording this on May 19th. So between now and you listening to this episode, there might be updates in the form of work sessions, committee votes, amendments, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a lot of the bills that we gave testimony on this session are related to abortion. We also testified on other topics. In fact, my first two bills I gave written testimony on this session were one that uh, was making sure state forms have a third gender marker option and one focused on having healthcare facilities do data collection for sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, So that first one, uh, looking at state forms, making sure they have a third gender marker option, what's really interesting with that is that that's already like the law, uh, the laws that we have in Maine around, you know, trans folks and having a third gender option. Folks might especially be familiar with a third gender option of X on state driver's licenses, state IDs and birth certificates in Maine. state forms in general are required to have that third gender option, but they haven't all been updated to do so. So this piece of legislation was basically just to, you know, scoot that along, make that happen. That improves things for non-binary trans folks like myself quite a bit. It also just makes things easier on like the bureaucratic paperwork side of things, because when you have documentation that like, you know, one document has this for a gender marker and another document has this for a gender marker, it can make things like kind of complicated. Uh, The other one that I mentioned about healthcare facilities and data collection, that is a lot of like data stuff that's a little convoluted to get into. Uh, But the sort of summary of it is that, you know, we know from research that when patients have the opportunity to accurately represent themselves for who they are, they have an increased quality in care. Uh, You know, they get misgendered less if they can put their pronouns down. And uh, providers know about health screenings that they might not have realized their patients need. Um, Abby, tell me a little bit about a piece of legislation that you've given some testimony on this session. Yeah, um, the first one that we that I submitted some written testimony for um, was a a bill that we stood in opposition to. It was titled um, LD 761. 
which we are not going to be giving you all the LD numbers today because um, it'll be a lot, but we did, we'll have it in our show notes. And so that if you have any like questions or want to look into some of the bills we were talking about, you'll be able to access that information. So this bill was titled an act to amend the laws governing the crime of endangering the welfare of a child and to create a crime of aggravated endangering of the welfare of a child. Long title. Um, (laughs) um, I think to start with, we assume that this bill came from a positive place and that we can agree with the the folks that proposed this bill that we want every child in Maine to be in a safe home and all children deserve to be safe. But we really believe that it, we need to take a preventative approach to child safety and not increase punishment after the occurrence already happened. Um, The punishment after does not protect kids from harm, but investing in our communities does. And um, additionally, as a healthcare provider, one of our biggest concerns with this with this bill is that it would deter people from seeking medical care for their children out of fear of um, of criminalization. And we really want to make accessing health care as safe as possible for people in our community. Mm. And I remember um, because I looked over this testimony after you had written it, you know, one of the big concerns, of course, was for folks who are in abusive situations and how, um, you know, our current system already often punishes survivors and victims of domestic violence. And that, like you said, a piece of legislation like this, while it probably comes from good intent, would really further someone or further punish someone who is in that situation and make it harder for them to like seek support. Exactly. And, and not seeking care could be a preventive measure for them to keep their kids safe. Right. And so we never want someone to be making those decisions. We always want healthcare to be the safest option for people to seek. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, and this, like I, like you mentioned about that, we think this bill came from good intentions, and I agree that I think it did. But this is a really good example of how, you know, legis- people writing legislation can have the intent of helping, but they can end up causing harm. And that's part of why it's really important that the legislature hears from organizations like us and from individuals that are knowledgeable on the topic, because it is not possible for legislators to know everything. Yeah. Uh, And on this bill specifically, we joined the ACLU of Maine in opposition, as well as the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence and um, Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights. So there was widespread opposition to this approach. Yeah. Uh, My first in-person testimony of this legislative session was one focused on gender-affirming care. So its fancy long title was LD 1040, an act to require reimbursement for gender-affirming care for main care members. And some folks who are listening might be like, uh, 
doesn't main care already do that? And you are correct. Main care does already cover gender affirming care. Uh, the way that it covers it right now is through a rule. Basically, one of the things that happened when our current governor became governor was she did an executive order to say, hey, main care should be covering gender affirming care because it should be. Uh, so this piece of legislation is to take it from being a rule to being a law. So that way it is more protected. Uh, because if it's only a rule, let's say we get a governor who is not super nice to trans folks. Um, that governor could just undo that piece uh, or that rule. Uh, if it's a law, it is much stronger and much better protects access to gender affirming care. Uh, now, a couple of weeks after I gave testimony on that bill, we had our marathon week where one or both of us was at the state house on Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. Abby, before we dive into the legislation that we testified on on Monday, May 1st, can you set the scene a little bit around, you know, the preparation that went into that marathon week? Sure. Yeah. So Monday, um, as Aspen said, we'll, we'll go into the legislation in a little bit, but all, all the bills on Monday that were heard Monday, May 1st, we were in support of. These were bills that um, the goal is to expand or protect access to abortion specifically in Maine. And um, we got there early in the morning because the first hearings were, were at 9 a.m. We joined our partner organizations who we meet with regularly to talk about um, abortion advocacy and reproductive rights with, which included and I might not get everybody, but Planned Parenthood of Northern New England or Planned Parenthood Main Action Fund might be their name, um, <laughs> as well as Maine Family Planning, the Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, the ACLU of Maine, the Maine Coalition to End Sexual Assault. Did I get that one right, Mikasa? I think it's against uh, sexual assault. Thank you. Um, can you think of any organization that I'm missing with that list? Um, ACLU? I think I said them as well. Um, and then as well as volunteers, people who had stories they wanted to share in their testimony. Um, and we met, we brought snacks. We knew it was a long day ahead of us. Um, and the opposition started to gather as well. That They were gathering in a different building. The early hearings were um, in the Cross building, but the afternoon hearings were in the State House. And they really were prioritizing the governor's bill that was going to be heard in the afternoon in the State House. And so while we were in the Cross building, Hundreds of anti-abortion folks were arriving and waiting in line to get through security. Um, and I think the news reported in total, there were over 600 people that, that testified in opposition to the governor's bill. So I think there was easily a thousand people there in total. Um, so that was sort of the the landscape of the day. 
it was a weird vibe because we both had our like nice little like abortion justice space in the cross cafe. Uh, but there were also just all of these anti-abortion folks about, um, with some very interesting shirts. I will leave that at that. Um, I think also one thing important to remember is that while, you know, there were over 600 anti-abortion folks who testified against the governor's bill. And of course, like you mentioned, more who showed up and had weird shirts and signs and paraded around a giant Virgin Mary statue. Um, We've done the research. We know that the majority of Mainers support this legislation. It's just that, like, the majority of Mainers can't just go hang out at the state house and, uh, like, give testimony or even just, like, I don't know, be there. Absolutely. And when we're talking, we'll talk more about this bill. But one of the things that it does is... Um, re- removes our gestational ban in Maine. Mm. And there's a range of reasons why someone might need care, abortion care, um, after what in our law is called viability. Um, that's not only to, to save or preserve the health of the quote mother, which is what was written in our law. And throughout the day, lawmakers heard stories of, of people who had to travel outside of Maine to get the care that they needed. And um, unfortunately, the opposition uses really intense scare tactics around this topic. And we heard it throughout the day. And really, it um, already the anti-abortion movement is emboldened currently because of the overturn of Roe. And this is one of their key tactics in motivating to in motivating people to get out in opposition. And the truth is, they don't understand the reality of why someone needs abortions throughout pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we I think our our um, group and our, our testifiers did a really great job of sh- of telling stories of why this is really essential in the state of Maine. Mm. Agree. Agree. And yeah, I want to just call back to where you mentioned like what's called viability and how it's like that is not a pregnancy is not like viable at that like to, you know, like for the fetus to be on its own. Like it is not actually viable. It's really interesting when you kind of get into the weeds, which we won't do here. But if you want to do research, listener, um, about like you know, what is considered viability in pregnancy? Why do we have trimesters and who decided that? Uh, you know, things like things like that. It's really interesting to look into when someone is con- when uh, pregnancy is considered to start is also a really interesting topic. Um yeah, once you start getting into it, you find out that a lot of it is not really about the well-being of the pregnant person, um, but much, much less, I guess, dramatic or at least drawing a lot less people. I was up first giving some testimony in the morning and the HCIFS committee starting right at nine. Um One of the bills I testified on was focused on improving insurance coverage of abortion care. Basically, it would make it so that, you know, you can 
you have private insurance and you can access abortion care without any co-pays, without any deductibles, um, because people deserve access to the care that they need. And finances shouldn't be a barrier to that. You know, abortion care, the costs you know, like can range in average in Maine, that's usually about $500. And there's also research that shows that like more than two thirds of Americans can't afford to just have to pay an emergency $500 bill. Uh, And abortion care is really time sensitive. You know, you're already paying your monthly insurance premium. You shouldn't have to pay this much money out of pocket. One of the things that was really Interesting to me is that some of the opposition, again, most of the opposition people saved their time for the afternoon bills, but some of the opposition that we did get in the morning and with this bill in particular was focused on, well, why only cover abortion care without deductibles? What about cancer treatment? What about X, Y, Z? And I'm like, yeah, we could <laughs> also cover like, it all. Like, yeah, sure. Are you going to put forth that bill? Are you going to do it? Because I'll support it if you do. It's also like for me as a cancer survivor, very interesting how like we'll see anti-abortion people like try to like pull out, you know, oh, well, what if someone gets cancer? Shouldn't that be covered? Yeah. Yeah, it should be. But you don't actually care about that. You just want a whataboutism to rely on. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. It was annoying. Uh, But the other bill that I testified on that morning was one focused on medical malpractice insurance for abortion providers. Uh, One piece of that being is that even though like abortion care is very safe, it's one of the safest like types of health care that you can access. uh, Medical malpractice insurance is really hard for abortion providers to get and can be like weirdly expensive. Like, It's harder to get than for other procedures that are a lot higher risk because of the stigma. So this is looking at making it, you know, so that abortion care providers can access it so that abortion care providers aren't being unnecessarily targeted in regards to this, that sort of thing. Uh, Now, like I said, we got some opposition to those morning bills, but most of it was focused in the afternoon with judiciary with the governor's bill that Abby mentioned and then another bill as well. Those actually got heard together for folks who haven't done legislative stuff before. That is sometimes something that will happen if you have bills that are related to each other and there's like a lot going on and you've got to time to be try to be time efficient uh sometimes bills will be heard together so then you can really only give testimony on one sometimes the amount of time you have testimony to give is shortened down to like two minutes uh which is what happened there abby as the one who testified on those two pieces of legislation can you share more about those bills and what testifying was like yeah so um the governor's bill was also um uh, led by the speaker, Rachel, Rachel Talbot Ross, uh, as well as the Senate president, Troy Jackson. So just wanted to be sure to give credit to all the leaders of that bill. Um, and it has the majority support from both the House and Senate. So we know that lawmakers are supporting this bill, just like Mainers. Um, The bill 
really took up the most of the time people were speaking about LD 1619. Um, and the three things that that bill does is, again, it removes the ban on abortions later in pregnancy. It also decriminalizes abortion. So both it removes the criminal penalties for medical providers who offer abortion care later in pregnancy, and it removes criminal penalties for support people who help someone self-manage abortion in Maine. We know that people are are choosing to self-manage abortion across the country, especially in places where abortion is banned, but that's happening in Maine as well. And um, we do not need additional criminalization language in our Reproductive Privacy Act. And then also it just um, makes changes to the way in which we collect data on abortion um, patients and providers. It's an outdated form that we are currently using that really needed to be updated probably decades ago, to be quite frank. Um, But now was a great opportunity to make those changes. Uh, With only two minutes to testify on both this bill and Representative Laura Supika's bill, which was to, um, which was really focused on the antis now have a tactic where in states that have maintained abortion access, they're chipping away at access town by town or trying to. And we took and Representative Supika took this opportunity to say, we're not going to allow that to happen in Maine. So um, this bill would prevent any towns or cities from banning abortion within it. It's sort of the same tactic that they've used state by states, right? Chipping away at access to abortion state by state until the ultimate goal of having it illegal or unavailable nationwide. Um, and then using that on a smaller scale in a state level. So that bill was to prevent that from happening in the state of Maine. We know we have a lot of rural communities and people deserve access to care wherever they live. Um, So we had two minutes to testify on both of those bills, uh, which both have a lot of important things that they do. So we did work in partnership with Um, the organizations we collaborate with to make sure each of us touched on a different point and and to make sure the lawmakers are hearing about each important aspect of the bill. Um, And since we are one of the three providers, the the part we focused on was actually data collection. Um, While we support all aspects of the bill, we thought it was important for people to know why that is um, currently invasive and problematic. Um, And some of the information we're forced to collect can be stigmatizing. So it's just time to look at it and make changes to it, bring it into the to year 2023. Mm. Um, Did I answer your question, Aspen? (laughs) Do you want to ask it again to be sure I I captured everything? No, I think you captured. I guess one thing is... um, if you want to talk about like what testifying was like, even so far as the piece about like, did you have to run into any antis? Like, what was that like? Yeah, that's a um, great question. So the way they did the testimony was everybody who was in support of the bill testified first. And and so um, everybody in the room with us 
uh, and it's a relatively small room, maybe like 25 people can fit in addition to the lawmakers. Everyone was in support of the bill. Um, and then we testified in support for three or four hours, and then they went to the opposition. Yeah. Um, and after that, they went to virtual testimony. And one of our the doctors that we worked with was not in Maine um, for this hearing. And so she was waiting all day and all night and into the morning for her chance to testify. Um, and unfortunately, by that point, they had also reduced the amount of time to one minute um, because this hearing went longer than anyone, I think, initially expected. Um, and then testifying, I did want to just like be honest. I um, have testified quite a few times, but I'm still human and make mistakes. And I forgot to take my sticker off for my testimony. So here's a tip for folks who um, are, are planning to testify at some point. You cannot wear any stickers or shirts that have sort of messaging on it. And so I lost maybe a few seconds of my time because I had to remove my sticker. And um, and that's just to say we all make mistakes and that mm. that we're all human and hopefully make others feel more comfortable testifying in the future. Um, so that's that's what it was like. Um, we left after we gave our testimony. We did not stay all day and listen to the anti-rhetoric. Nope. Um, but the Judiciary Committee, and thank you to all of those members, stayed mm -hmm. all through the night and into the morning um, listening to people who opposed this really important bill that is essential to, to ensure that people can get the health care that they need in our state. Yeah, it was such a long day. And I know I've said this before, but you did such a good job wrangling questions both on Monday and when you were back in front of judiciary that Friday. Uh, I was back bright and early on Tuesday morning, about half an hour after the public hearing from the day before wrapped up uh, because it went until like 730 in the morning and I got there at eight. Um, so I was there to take part in Trans Day at the State House, did some tabling, chatted with folks and some legislators. It was a lovely um, shout out to Maine Transnet for organizing that. And of course, the countless other organizations that were there. Uh, and then that afternoon, I testified on a bill about stealthing that's looking to give victims and survivors of this specific type of sexual assault a path to justice through the civil courts rather than the criminal courts. Um, so this is a bill that um, there were a few organizations that gave testimony on this, but we got connected through it or to it through our friends with Mikasa. Um, so uh, stealthing is not like the technical terminology used in like the bill title or any of that, uh, but it is the commonly used word to describe what it is. And that is, um, so stealthing is non-consensual removal of or tampering with a condom. Um, it is a form of sexual assault. It is obviously like very much violating a person's bodily autonomy. And an important piece of this bill is not just it recognizing 
um, you know, that this is indeed assault, but it also seeks to give survivors and victims a path to justice through the civil courts rather than the criminal courts. Um, and one of the reasons for that was very much exemplified by a survivor who gave testimony, um, who actually is someone that the sponsor of this bill, uh, Representative Nina Milliken, um, knows personally who shared her story about, you know, having experienced this and, you know, trying to get justice going through the criminal courts, but how the criminal court system when it comes to sexual assault often really only serves to re-traumatize survivors and victims um, and very rarely leads to any form of justice. You know, people will go to the police, will like share what happened to them, will be forced to share what happened to them over and over and over again. Um, and then a DA can just decide not to pursue it. They can just decide to not pursue charges. Um, and even if they do, you know, the the likelihood that anything comes of it is often like very low. Um, so this, you know, bill addresses like a couple really important things. I didn't want to interrupt you, but when oh, you were good. talking about, you know, the way in which somebody brought their story to mm. the state house just made me think about all the people that have been sharing their experiences um, through all the bills that we're talking about today, really. And, you know, Mabel Wazer Center has has for a long time supported and created space for individual story sharing and um, to share our stories with each other, because so many of the topics that we all the, the work that we do, the healthcare we provide are things that aren't often talked about and it can create stigma and shame. And we want to change that in the world. And yet my heart is just a little bit frustrated with how mm -hmm. we have to share our stories in these venues yes. in order for people to, to try to change hearts and minds for people to see how essential this work is. And it's, it's very important. I really value all the people who have done that work of sharing their intimate experiences. And we should never have to do that, right? Like our intimate experiences should be able to be ours. And we should have systems and laws that already support us, right? And so... I just have been thinking a lot about all the people who are willing to to tell strangers about some of the hardest moments of their lives in order to change the laws so that other people don't have to go through the same things that they did. Exactly. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, I completely feel that it's that that balance, because, you know, like people need to be allowed to share their stories. They need to have the space to do that. And then, you know, I feel like sometimes because we advocate for that, people think it's then fine that people sort of have to share their stories in spaces like this. And it's like, no, like that survivor shouldn't have had to go up and talk about how the DA for her county refused to pursue sexual assault charges um 
One, because that never should have happened in the first place. And two, because she shouldn't have to stand up in front of a legislative committee to talk about one of the most traumatic things that she's ever experienced. Like, it gets very frustrating. Yeah. Shall I jump into? Yes, I want you to talk with us about uh Getting back to the state house Friday morning. Yes, um, with more stories to share. <laughs> um, so Friday was again back at the state house regarding abortion related bills, um, but instead on Friday they were all uh, all anti abortion. And what we were seeing is what we see year after year across the country, not just in Maine, but. But bills that lo- that would start to chip away at the access that we have in Maine, um, and often they try to use tactics that seem reasonable. So some of the messaging that we heard that day was, "I'm not trying to impose on a woman's right to choose." This is me with quotes because I would use gender inclusive language, but. I wasn't the person proposing this bill. Um, And so they had some bills titled an act to protect a woman's right to withdraw consent for an abortion, right? And so this is one trying to vilify abortion providers. Um, And from my experience working with providers, people who provide abortion care are the most compassionate people I have come across. And reproductive health care settings are all trauma-informed and consent-driven. So it's just intentional. This these bills are really set to set um, to create messaging for the antis and to create stigma around abortion. Mm. Some of the other bills would really res- have um, restrict access to care. So one is to remove state funding uh, to be in line with the federal Hyde Amendment. In 2019, we made this progress so that Maine Care and private insurances now cover abortion in the state of Maine. That's significantly changed access to abortion in our state. We know prior to that, the nationwide statistic is that one in four people who have Medicaid who wanted to access abortion were forced to continue a pregnancy um, because their insurance did not cover it. So we know that it had it's essentially for a, a group of people. It's a, an abortion ban um, and we really should be talking about it that way. Another one was to restrict telehealth med- medication abortion through telehealth. This also has made abortion easier to access, especially in our rural communities. Um, just. I want to say probably five years ago, people had to travel to Bangor, Augusta, or Portland to access either the in-clinic procedure or medication abortion. Now medication abortion is not only available at all of Maine Family Planning's remote clinics, it's also, in rural clinics, it's also available through telehealth 
um, to be mailed. So you have a consultation and then the pills are mailed to your home. This is a safe way. The, the research is clear. <laughs> um, this is safe, but they know that this, this is a, a medication and a, a way of distributing it that has significantly increased access to abortion across the country. And that's why it is now a target. Um, that was so yeah. interesting to me because like you said we know it's safe the research has been done um actually calling back when you had obviously this is not self-managed we're talking about telehealth um but you had mentioned earlier about folks doing self-managed like the research shows that like using medication abortion self-managed and like working through a provider doing like telehealth have like the same safety and efficacy levels, which is really, really high safety and efficacy. Um, you know, the abortion medications are safer than Tylenol. Like there is a lower risk of complication or like negative health impact. One thing that was so interesting, because I did catch a little bit of like anti-abortion testimony in regards to like that bill. And this person was talking about how dangerous oh my gosh, no, this chemical abortion, which they use the word chemical to make it sound scary. Water's a chemical. But anyways, um, <laughs> like talking about how it's so dangerous. And this person was like citing data about like, you know, 60% blah, 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 like complications. And I'm like, I have never heard this before. Um, and like this person mentioned like what their citation was. Um, and one of my friends who was at the state house with us that day looked it up. The citation for this data was the Christian Civic League website. I'm going to, yeah, it was not peer reviewed. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might have been just made up, but continue <laughs> talking about the other bills. I just wanted to put that back. No, I think that there. the other thing I want to add around that is that if there is any type of complication with medication abortion with anything there there are some compl potential complications yeah. and that includes medication abortion what's essential is that people are able to access follow-up care yes and that can be right at a clinic like ours but also that means that places people need to feel safe to access the care in, in emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. And really the anti-abortion movement is the one that's making that less safe for folks because they yes. are making people feel like they can't access the care that they need because they will be shamed or criminalized in, not in the state of Maine, but across the country. And um, that is the danger with medication abortion, not the pills themselves. Yeah, it is it is the criminalization that and the shame and the stigma that that is the issue. Um, and so the other um, bill that was concerning was around requiring an ultrasound Ugh. and also some like scripted counseling before an abortion. So what we've seen with bills like that are really like lies first that you're forced to to tell your patients um this has passed in states across the country where you have to lie and say things like um abortion is associated with breast cancer or um misinformation about mental health um and then the the goal around 
requiring an ultrasound is one to to shame people mm-hmm. but now additionally um first of all it they sh- you know politicians should not be telling us what best medical practice is right our doctors know our uh, and we follow uh decades of research so we follow what is medically accurate and we know that we do not need to to do ultrasounds for all pregnancies um and so the requirement of an ultrasound would also impact the availability of telehealth mm-hmm. but also just take away people's autonomy and right to refuse certain medical treatments if they don't want it so um it was once again a day full of bills that are frustrating to see time and time again but also if they did pass would have a really significant impact on abortion access in Maine um which we know they're not going to pass we have yeah a majority of support uh, uh majority of lawmakers in Maine currently support abortion access um but it is still important for folks to understand the ways in which these bills would impact those mm. services so so we yeah. spent the day with with these bills they um put them all together at the same time and we only had two minutes to um to testify on them so we really took kind of a zoomed out approach to our testimony just saying how this is an ongoing tactic of the anti-abortion movement to restrict access named a few specifics but really with two minutes we couldn't give give too much detail on the testimony and then um there was space to answer questions to get into more detail yeah and that afternoon i had testimony to give on two anti-abortion bills i'm surprised they actually didn't you know, put the two hearings together. Um, I sort of wish they had because I actually, one of the bills, I just had to hand my written testimony to the clerk because I had a tabling event for us to get to in Waterville. Um, But so the two bills that I did testimony for, the one that I gave my written testimony was one that was focused on requiring school staff to notify parents of any quote unquote medical issue that a student discloses. Um, And the other one, which I did give my verbal testimony on and answered all kinds of questions about, was focused on making it so that minors have to get parental consent for all medical care. Um, And what's interesting about both of these bills is that both of them touched more than abortion obviously like the impact on abortion was important as well um but it touched on more than that so like requiring school staff to notify parents of a medical issue that a minor student discloses would also force like while being trans is not a medical issue if a student were to be like, I'm trans and I'm having gender dysphoria, then that school staff would be required to out that trans kid to their parent. Or if you have a student who's like, oh my God, I am pregnant and I don't know what to do. And that's whether they're like, I want to have an abortion or I want to continue this, but my parents aren't going to be cool with that. Um, the school staff would have to disclose that. And then the other one focused on making it so that minors would have to get parental consent for all medical care. So our testimony on that was largely focused on, of course, abortion care access, um, 
the state of Maine has an adult involvement law, which is just would you know which is a lot better than requiring parental consent because in an ideal world it would be safe for all children to share the things going on in their lives with their parents and to share if they need an abortion or need any sort of medical care um but unfortunately it's not. Um, the other area that we focused on was STI testing and treatment, because this bill would make it so that minors wouldn't be able to get STI testing and treatment without parental consent, um, which on top of being a huge, huge autonomy violation is also a public health nightmare um, because there are absolutely parents out there, unfortunately, who if they're kid was like, hey, I have been sexually active. I need testing. Or like, hey, I think I might have an STI. There are parents who would refuse to let their child access testing and treatment as a form of punishment. Um, and also, while I didn't touch on it in my testimony, and I put that focus on, you know, youth being barred from accessing abortion care, um, Another piece is that there are parents who, you know, if their teen gets pregnant, like they don't support them having an abortion, but they also don't support them continuing the pregnancy. Like they're just mad that they got pregnant at all, even though that's something that humans just like are kind of good at sometimes. Um, and like there are parents who will like basically refuse to support their child and accessing prenatal care if they are continuing a pregnancy. Um, so like, while our testimony didn't focus on that piece, that is a reality. Like having a bill like this that is really focused on making it so that like minors can't access abortion care without parental consent would also stop them from accessing prenatal care, um, which is just yikes. Very just, yikes. Uh, but um, so the legislative session isn't over yet. Um, the latest bills that I wrote testimony for, which I did uh, some Zoom testimony virtual because it was a week after our marathon week. And I simply could not handle going to the state house again that quickly. Um, but so one was focused on safeguarding access to gender affirming care. Uh, a lot of that was really looking at you know, folks who are having to like they live in states that have passed bans on gender affirming care. And so moving to states like Maine that have better access. Um, what's interesting with that bill is it actually is in the process of being amended because from when it was first written to now, the landscape around gender affirming care bans in this country has worsened so much because when it was originally written, we were mostly only seeing states, not that this is okay, but we were mostly only seeing states do bans on gender affirming care for minors. And now we're seeing states do bans on gender affirming care for adults. Um, so that bill is basically safeguarding access to gender affirming care here, making it so that let's say someone from Florida moves to Maine or like at least comes to Maine to start accessing gender affirming care that like people in Florida can't like try to pursue legal charges against the provider in Maine who's providing that care. Um, the other bill, which is 
huge, um, is one that would allow 16 and 17 year old trans kids to access gender affirming hormone therapy without parental consent. Um, that one is huge. Again, in an ideal world, all youth would be able to be honest with their parents about who they are and what's going on in their lives and the care that they need. But we do not live in an ideal world. Um, What's also really interesting about that, which was not uh, so much touched on in our covering of this, the way like current Maine law is to allow minors to access gender affirming hormone therapy um, requires that you have to have parental consent from both parents even if like one of the parents is not involved. So back when I used to work with youth, I had a kiddo, like a 16 year old who mom was fully on board, fully supportive, like, heck yeah, let's start testosterone. And they had to basically prove it on a shadow within without a shadow of a doubt that they had done everything to contact this like teen's father who had like, you know, fully abandoned them like years and years and years before um, in order to access the care. And I think it like delayed the process by something of like a year. Um, And like to require input from a parent who's literally not even involved is wild anyways. But also, you know, one of my areas of focus on that testimony is that minors are people. They are not the property of their parents. Um, Mm -hmm. And I trust them to know themselves and to know what their needs are. I don't expect them to know what doses they need of medications because like, I don't know that because I don't have medical training. Um, But I know if I have a headache, I know that a few years ago, I wanted to go on gender affirming hormone therapy myself. One of the parallels that I drew in my testimony and when I talk about this generally is gender affirming hormone therapy and hormonal contraception. You know, as it is in Maine, teens can access birth control, hormonal contraception without parental consent. Uh, And while obviously they are different medications and they do different things, I think that contraception is kind of analogous to gender affirming hormones here. One, they're both hormones. Um, And two, they're both really good examples of having autonomy and control over your body. Um, But I have my fingers crossed for that. Yeah. I I was just thinking about how how also in your testimony, you're emphasizing how this kind of healthcare is truly life-saving. Oh, absolutely. And when you were saying that that person you worked with had to wait a year for a life-saving medical care because of the barriers that our state has in place, like that has to change. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and obviously, you know, being trans is not like a uniform experience there's so many different ways to be trans and that includes like what gender affirming care looks like like some people never do hormones some people are like full pedal to the metal hormones some people do hormones like a bit for a short period of time i'm an example of that um i did testosterone i did the gel because i am a baby and i didn't want to do weekly injections um and i did that for a year my goal with doing it was always that it was temporary um 
And, you know, it was such a positive experience for me. And in my case, it wasn't to reduce dysphoria. It was purely to like achieve gender euphoria, which is what I did. But there are also people for whom like not having hormones is a huge, huge issue of gender dysphoria. And we know from the research that's been done that, you know, when we prevent gender, when we prevent gender affirming care access for trans youth, it increases suicide rates. It increases other detrimental impacts on mental health. But we also know that when trans youth and trans adults have access to gender affirming care, they are happier. Like people often put this focus on what if they regret it? What if they change their mind? Gender affirming hormone therapy has the lowest regret rate of any example of medical care. Um, I'll find, I cited this in one of my pieces of testimony, so I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but research has been done that shows that gender affirming care has a 0.3% regret rate, 0.3, 0.3, literally less than 1% rate. And among those who regret it, most of them, that regret is based in coming out as trans made my family disown me. Mm-hmm. So it's not the actual care. It was the like family rejection. Um, For contrast, uh, knee replacement surgeries have something like a 20 to 60% regret rate. Um, No one is going out there. I know. (laughs) No one is putting out legislation to be like, we need to stop people from having knee replacements. The regret rate is astronomical because we trust people who want knee replacements to to you know do informed consent we trust them to like know what their needs are and to assess the risk and the issue is that like transphobes don't trust trans people to do that because they just don't want trans people to be which is big oof mm-hmm. uh as said though the legislative session isn't over yet There are bills still to be heard, uh, work sessions to be done, and of course, votes in the full legislature, some important context. What we've been talking about with these hearings are in specific committees, like judiciary, HCIFS, et cetera. Um, Oh, there's an echo. Sorry, Ryan, that I said that out loud. Now you have to edit that. It stopped. Anyways, uh, we know the legislation session isn't over yet. There are still bills to be heard, work sessions to be done, and of course, votes in the full legislature. Uh, What we've been discussing at this point is hearings that are in specific committees like Judiciary and HCIFS. Things get voted on in their committee, and then they go to the full legislature for a vote. Uh, Abby, what can our listeners do at this stage to support or oppose legislation? So ways that you can help are to write letters to the editor um, in support or in opposition to any of the bills that we outlined today. Um, And we, you can always reach out to us if you need more information about that. Also calling or emailing or somehow contacting your lawmakers, your representatives and your senators. Um, 
we've sent out some emails with this before, but you can find out if your uh, senator or your representative are co-sponsors, especially of the, the governor's bill. Um, and you can thank them. If they're not, you can reach out and say, hey, please support this bill. It's really important. Um, those are two of the most important ways. You can also, uh, there are still bills that will be heard in committees coming up like next week. I know Aspen will be back um, testifying in support of paid leave in Maine. Um, and that is a coalition that we've been a part of for quite some time and one of our priorities this year. Um, so there's still an opportunity for you to write testimony or uh, show up in person to to let lawmakers know the about the values you hold and and what you want our state to look like in the future. So, yes, those are ways you can get involved, take action, make sure your voice is heard. I'll also say writing a letter to the editor is a lot less scary than you think. It's also a lot shorter than you think because people are like, oh, I have to write something. It's like it's 250 words or less. Um way easier to knock that out than a lot of people think. And it is really important. I think some people are like, who reads the LTEs, right? The letters to the editor. Uh, the lawmakers do. The governor yep. does. And it re and really are paying attention to what people are saying there. Absolutely. Abby, I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of Reproductive Left. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. Obviously, things are scary across the country right now, and it is good to know that Maine is pushing towards improving abortion access and trans rights. We all deserve access to the care we need and to live in safe communities. We'll see you next time.